everybody. How you doing today? Are you glad to be here today? All right. All right. Hey, let's get our Bibles out and uh, let's open them up uh, to the book of Titus uh, in the New Testament. Titus, small little book uh, of Titus. It only has 46 verses in it. Only three little chapters. In fact, if, if, when I look at my Bible, there's only about a page and a half of the whole, the whole book. And yet, it's a tiny little book, but it's got this powerful message uh, for us that we need to hear uh, today. And uh, we're launching today our series called Do Good. In fact, uh, the theme of doing good or doing good works is a theme that runs all the way through this little book of Titus. In fact, in chapter 1, it says that we are to be lovers of good. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says we're to model good works. Uh, In chapter uh, 3, twice it says we're to devote ourselves to doing good works. So this idea of doing good kind of runs all through the book. And so we thought we don't want to just talk about doing good. We should actually do something good, right? And so we are going to be spilling out into our community over the next three or four weeks doing what we call Serve the City, where we have projects where we just do good to people and love on people in the name of Christ. And it's a wonderful time. We've done this before. It's a wonderful time. So if you're in a connect group, then you'll automatically have a project to participate in. But if you are not in a connect group, you go to firstcollieville.com forward slash STC for serve the city and join us in a service project. It's good not only to hear about it, but then to put it into action, right? And so that's what we're doing through this series called uh, Do Good. So let's just jump right on into it. Titus chapter 1. We're just going to dive right into uh, God's Word today. So if you're there, say amen. amen. All right. This is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and of Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, stop right here. Uh, This is a letter written uh, to new believers. And so this first couple of verses I just read is really kind of the introduction to the letter. There's a lot packed into this. I mean, you could do a whole sermon just on the first two or three verses. So, but I just want to lift out a couple of things that are really important for you to understand big picture as we go through our study. The first thing I want you to, I want you to highlight three names. The first name I want you to circle is the word Paul. Circle that just right there in verse one. Paul. This is the apostle Paul. This is the man who hated Christians, hated Christ, uh, opposed the church and persecuted the church in so many ways, but was radically transformed on the road to Damascus and turned from a church persecutor really to a church planter. And so now he's taking the ch- he's taking the gospel and he's planting uh, churches all over the known world. So this is who's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul, a very formidable leader uh, in the early church. All right, now circle the name uh, Titus, that's in verse 4, circle that name. Uh, Titus is the one that's receiving this letter. 
Now, who is Titus? Titus is, is mentioned in four different books in the New Testament. And yet, we don't really know a lot about him. He's kind of mentioned, but not a lot is said about Titus. Here's what we know. Titus was a Greek uh, and was probably came to faith in Christ when the Apostle Paul went out the first time and started sharing the gospel. Probably then, Titus was saved. He heard the gospel, became a follower of Jesus. But Titus also became one of Paul's kind of right-hand men, uh, early pastors, young pastor and leader in the church. In fact, there are two notable young pastors that Paul mentored. One was Titus and the other was Timothy. In fact, there, there are books written. First and second Timothy are written to Timothy, the young pastor, and then Titus to Titus, the young pastor. They call those the pastoral epistles because they're written to young pastors about how to lead the church. And so Titus was one of these guys. He was one of Paul's right-hand men. And you could really say that Titus was Paul's troubleshooter. Whenever Paul had a sticky situation, a hard assignment, he would always send Titus in there. So Titus was the guy that got sent to Corinth. When Corinth was off the rails and they had all kinds of issues, major issues going on, Paul sent Titus in there with the letter to the Corinthians to straighten things out and to love the people and get them back on track. When, uh, when Paul needed to go to Crete, uh, that's where he sent Titus. In fact, that's what is happening right here. So why don't you circle the third name, and that is in verse 5, the name Crete. Where is this place that Paul is sending Titus? Well, it's the island of Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean, 164 miles in length. It's a kind of a long, narrow island uh, just south of Greece. It's one of, one of the largest islands of the Grecian islands and if you travel there today, it's a beautiful place. I mean, it'd be a great place to go on a vacation, a beautiful ocean, beautiful beaches, wonderful place, uh, but the people were not so wonderful, okay? Uh, in fact, back in Paul's day, the Cretans were, were known as just crazy, wild, uh, scandalous, uh, violent, sometimes greedy, lying people, okay? You say, wow, Craig, that's pretty intense, what you just said. Well... Actually, the Apostle Paul quoted a writer from Crete about his own people. And this is what he said. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, you probably wouldn't put that on the brochure, right? <laughs> Come to Crete, island of liars and lazy gluttons, you know. But that's, that was their reputation. That's, they had a really a sordid uh, reputation. And yet, some of these Cretans heard the gospel. We do know that there were some that were at Pentecost uh, when Peter preached the gospel, and some of them were probably saved. Maybe they took the gospel with them to their island, and they started sharing it with other people, and all of a sudden, uh, people started coming to Christ. And churches started kind of popping up all across this island. Multiple small little house churches were being uh, created on this island. And so Paul wanted Titus to remain there in Crete and basically to do two things. Uh, to, to kind of put things in order, to structure the things out. Maybe Titus had a gift of administration. He probably had a gift of leadership. And he could go in there and he could kind of structure things out and then to appoint good leaders in the churches. Now, what's in Paul's mind, and this is, this is a theme all the way through the book, so I want you to understand this. What's in Paul's mind is that Paul had a strategy for changing a culture. All right, are you ready for it? This is a wild, crazy strategy. All right, here it is. Paul's strategy was that Christians 
would live so differently than the world around them that the gospel would be undeniable because of the difference it made in that person. That Christians would be so different that that business guy didn't, he's acting different, that that uh, lady there that runs her business would act so different, that those kids in school would be so different than the other ones that they would say, hey, I have no explanation other than the power of the gospel must be true. Now listen, Paul didn't say you need to boycott uh, certain businesses. Paul didn't say you need to demonstrate in the streets. Paul didn't say you need to uh, legislate uh, some new, new things and that's going to change the culture. He said you just need to be different. You just need to be light. Just be light. And, and this is a very important message for us because we're living in a day when we're seeing moral decline over and over and over. I mean, you're watching TV going, how can that be on primetime TV, all right? But it is. And uh, we're, we're seeing uh, the, the fabric of the family torn apart. You're seeing a decline in, in morality in our country. And, and so what do we do? He didn't say, curse the darkness. He didn't say, uh, uh, demand the things from the darkness. He didn't say, demonstrate against the darkness. He just said, turn the light on. Just be light in a dark world. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds, your, your noble life, and, and glorify your Father in heaven. So are you doing that? Are you, are you turning the light on? Are you light in your dark office, in your dark neighborhood, in your dark world? Are you being light? That's really Paul's strategy. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. And he says, if you're going to be a church that's a light, we need to have a church that has good leadership. So uh, Paul's thinking is this. If you want to change the culture, you start with the leader. The leader shapes the culture. It's always top down. Culture is always top down. And so if you want to change the culture, you've got to change the leader. And we need to be sure we've got good godly leaders leading these churches, right? Which would totally make sense. Now, the rest of what follows is the qualifications for a leader in a church. Now, I want you to stop right now and, 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 and do not turn me off, okay? Because the minute I say, well, the rest of what follows is about the quality of leaders in a church, you're like, oh, great, well, that didn't apply to me, right? Because I'm not a leader in a church, and so I can just, I can snooze a little bit, or I can do my little uh, list for the week. I can do something to take up some time. Uh, but listen, you need, you need to hear this. Uh, we need to hear this. Why? Well, for two reasons. One is because over the next month, we're asking you to nominate people for leadership. And these uh, leadership brochure nomination forms are out in the lobby. They're in all the connect groups. They're online. And we're asking you to submit names of people that could fill leadership roles. So what kind of people should you nominate? We should nominate people I'm going to talk about, the people I'm going to describe right now out of God's word. And I hope that you'll participate over the next month in nominating good godly. We have great leaders, by the way, in this church and godly people that love Jesus. And so we need to be aware and always moving those kind of people into leadership. The second reason why is because if leadership equals influence, then that means all of us have influence and you have influence. And so uh, you, some of you have influenced hundreds of people in your company. Some of you are influenced people one-on-one -on -one, one, you know, with a client. Some of you influence patients that you deal with. Some of you uh, influence people in your classroom, the students that flow through there every single day or on your teams that you coach. You are a person of influence. And so this is really talking about pastors, yes, but it's also talking about 
how we should be leaders, how we should be people of influence. And if you're a millennial and you're here and you're like, hey, I want to I wanna really climb into leadership and I really want to do well in my career, then you need to listen up because I'm going to show you what a good leader looks like. And if you're a seasoned leader and you've been around for a while, then listen, you need to be reminded of what good leadership looks like from God's perspective, okay? What I'm going to give you today are the four spheres or four circles of godly leadership, four spheres of faithful godly leadership, okay? And that's what I'm going to give you uh, today just right out of of the word here. So when Paul talks about what kind of leaders that need to be in place, he uses two words that are mentioned I think in verse 6 and in verse 7, two words. And the words are above reproach. Get that? Above reproach. He says that in verses 6 and in verse 7. These leaders, these elders, these overseers need to be above reproach. Uh, Your Bible might also use the word blameless. Sometimes it's translated the word blameless. What it really means is if you were put on trial and they were to scrub down your laptop and they were to look at all your emails and all your texts and they they were to look for anything incredulous, anything that's not right, anything that's off kilter, they would find nothing. Not one tweet, not one post, not one uh, voicemail, nothing, because you are above reproach. And everybody, you say, fine, look at them. I got nothing to hide. Look at it, because I'm living above reproach, above compromise. That's what that means, or blameless. Another uh, word that is often used in the Bible, and I just want to add it here, is the word faithful. Faithful. You're look, God is looking for faithful leaders. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Uh, Verse 2, it says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So really what God's looking for are faithful leaders, faithful in every capacity, faithful leaders. And by the way, folks, we need faithful leaders really bad. Now more than ever before, we need faithful, good, godly leaders because we, there is a dearth of those people right now. Uh, New York Times uh, article came out, I think, in February of this year, basically went back and talked about since Harvey Weinstein uh, was kind of ousted as the, uh, uh, for his abuse of women, they listed 71 leaders from all different kinds of walks of life that have fallen because of moral infidelity or uh, abuse of women. 71 leaders. And these are people in the business world, judges, orchestra conductors, sports figures, I mean, it's sickening to see all that's happening in our world. And by the way, folks, the church is not uh, exempt from this. We have seen notable pastors now uh, having to fend off accusations of sexual impropriety. In fact, this week, I heard of another denominational leader that stepped down because of an unfaithful relationship with a woman that was not his wife. We need godly leaders And we need them in the churches, and we need them in the corporate offices, and we need them in the schools, and we need them as coaches. We need them everywhere. We need good, godly leaders. So so what does a good, godly leader look like? Well, let me give you these four spheres of uh, godly leadership, all right? So here it is. Here's the first one. The first sphere is what I call home life. Uh, faithful leadership begins at home. 
Faithful leadership begins at home. Look at verse six. If anyone is above reproach, he needs to be the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So he said, listen, the kind of guys you want to appoint as pastors in these house churches in Crete, first off, they need to be godly men at home. It starts at home. It starts with the relationship between the husband and his wife. Now here he's talking about pastors, so he's talking about the masculine sense of husband of one wife. What it means here is that he's, he's only married to one woman and that he's a one woman man. Those are two different things. Cretans thought that if you had multiple wives, then that just showed your, your prowess and your, and your status. He said, no, no, just one wife and then be devoted to her, a one woman man, faithfully devoted to one woman. Listen, we have some leaders and pastors, they're only married to one wife, but they're not a one woman man. The way they flirt with people in the office, the way they go online, the, the comments that they make to women that work for them is completely inappropriate. And it shows the issue in his own heart. That what you're looking for is someone who loves his wife, is devoted to his wife, that cares for his wife, that leads his wife well, that loves his wife well, and that everybody knows he's devoted to his wife. Everybody knows it. He's a one-woman man. And then he says, not only devoted to his wife, but also uh, to his children, that he lovingly leads his children. He says children should be believers, they should be followers of Christ, and that they should, uh, they should not be known for uh, wild living and being uh, uh, rebellious, basically. <laughs> Debauchery and, and rebellious living. They, 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 it's not that they're perfect. They don't have to be perfect. Listen, nobody's kids are perfect. But that they, that they know Christ and they're trying to honor their parents and they're trying to honor God in the things that they do. And so he said, listen, this is where it starts right here. It starts in the home. Godly leadership starts at the home. Listen, what good is it if you win in the boardroom, but you lose at home? What, what good is it if you, if you achieve every one of your career goals, but you fail to have your home? Listen, at the end of the day, you're going to get replaced from your office, wherever that is. Somebody's going to slide a new name tag on the door, and the org chart's going to change, and they're going to forget you. They're going to cut you a check, and you're going to be gone. And people are going to forget you, but you'll be left with your family. And he said, it starts with the family. If you want to appoint leaders in the church, it starts at home. If you want to, appoint, if you want to be a godly leader in the marketplace, that leadership in the marketplace starts in the home with you loving your wife or loving your husband and being faithful to your husband, loving your children, leading them and nurturing them to know Christ and to follow Christ and sharing grace with them when they fail. It starts in the home. Second sphere of leadership is, is this. That is what we call the public life. This is a life that everybody sees. So this is basically your reputation. Everybody has a, a reputation. Look at verse uh, 7. He says, uh, for an overseer, as God's steward, uh, it must be above reproach. He must be, uh, not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good. This, he's talking about how people know this person. How do they act in, in the secular world, out in the marketplace? What are they, what are they known for? And, and everybody's got a reputation. You have a reputation. You know that? People talk about you at the water cooler. You know that, right? People tweet about you. They're, they have conversations about you, right? You know that. We all have a reputation. 
I remember meeting a lady this week and uh, I was talking to her and she said, yeah, I've been in the area for about 40 years. And I said, great. I said, well, my name is Craig. She goes, oh yeah, I, I know all about you. I'm like, oh, now she smiled. So I'm hoping it was good, right? But I got a reputation, you know, whatever, good or bad, you know, there it is. And so everyone has that. So what do people think about you? What do they say about you when you're not around? And basically what he's saying here is that these are the things that should not be said about you. These are the five, he lists five negatives, five things that should not be of a godly leader. And just look at them. They're very obvious. Number one is not arrogant. This person is not puffed up. It's not all about them. They're not always talking about them. It doesn't all, conversation doesn't always have to be toward them. They're not arrogant. They're not puffed up. They're not prideful. Number two, they're, they're not quick-tempered. In other words, they're not, they're going to fly off the handle. You don't have to walk around on eggshells. They're not super moody where one minute they're, they're screaming at you and the next minute, you know, they're, they're your best friend and you can't ever tell which one they are. That is not acceptable for a godly leader. Number, number three, uh, they're, they're not a drunkard. Now, while the Bible does not uh, prohibit uh, drinking alcohol, the Bible does warn us over and over and over about the dangers of alcoholism and, and, and addiction and abuse. And coming from someone who has, who has seen this firsthand in my extended family, it's, it's playing with fire. He said, he said, not a drunkard, not given a much wine. Look at verse four, not violent. This is not a guy that's going to roll up on somebody. He's not going to say, well, let's just take this outside and see how we handle it. You know, that's, that God leader doesn't do that. God leader is not pounding his fist on the, uh, you know, on the table or, or ripping things off as they leave the, the room in some kind of fit. You know, that's, that's inappropriate for a godly leader. And then the last one, he just said, not greed for gain. I mean, this, again, he's talking primarily about pastors here, but he said, if, if you're in the ministry because you think you're going to get, you know, this sweet package and you're going to have this great house and go on these great vacations and fly in this private jet and you're going to have all this kind of, you got the wrong guy if that's what motivates him. Not greedy for more, greedy, greedy, greedy. Now, now the reason why I think this list is here is because this was common in Crete. This is how the leaders operated. They were arrogant, they were prideful, they were greedy, they lied, they threw fits, they, they, they were all these, they, they, were, they were alcoholics, most of them. That's how they operated. You say, well, that sounds, like, that sounds like my business, you know. There's a lot of that going on in my world too. Well, that may be true. But he said, that's not what godly leaders are like. You gotta be different than that. You got to look different than that. If that's the, if that's the current of your business, you got to be going against the current. He said, in fact, I don't want you to be like this. Don't ever pick anybody like that to be a leader. Instead, they need to be something else. And he lists two words here. Look at it. It's right there in your Bible in verse eight. They need to be hospitable and then lovers of good. I love that. Hospitable means literally lovers of people. They need to be so other-centered that when you walk in their office or they stop what they're doing and they say, hey, sit down, let's talk about that. Uh, if, if you're hospitable, you're known, your reputation is, man, if you go into her office and you got a problem, it doesn't matter where you are on the org chart. She will stop what she's doing and listen to you and give you kind, good, wise advice. Man, if you need help, you go talk to him and he will help you in, your, in, in the office because he's just so kind. He's the guy that when he walks through the door, he knows every person's name uh, that works in the organization, even if they work in the basement. He, he just, he treats people as everyone is common. Everyone is even. 
That's what Paul means in Philippians 2 uh, when he says, consider others more important than yourself. Have you ever been around somebody like that? That when you see them, even though they may be in a high position of leadership, they just look at you and they value you and they lock eyes and they're not looking through you to who else is in the room that's really important that I could connect with, but they just look to you. That's the kind of person, hospitable, lover of people. And then he said, lover of good. They just, they just champion what's good. I mean, they love it when marriages win. They love it when people tell the truth. They love it when, when the good prevails. All those things that Paul said, fix your mind on whatever's good and pure and lovely and good repute and so on. That's what they champion. They want good to win. It's not so much what they're against as what they're for. And, and they just, they spill this out. This is the kind of, are you that way in your classroom? Are you this way with your team? Are you this way uh, with the people around you? Basically, he's saying, listen, this is the kind of leader we need to have. In their public life, this is what they're known for. They love people, they love good, and they obviously love God. You know, uh, it's been common to do what the leaders call a 360 review, where they, they kind of give evaluations for their leaders and it's all anonymous and so you can say whatever you want to say that's really happened I just wonder what would what would your team say about you if they if they realized there were no reprisals and they could just speak the truth would they say yeah they don't fly off the handle they they're not greedy they 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 love people they love the team they love the good things around them this is what you're looking for he said, I need a leader in their home life is blameless, above reproach. I need a leader in his public life that is known for the good. And then there's, there's another one. And this, this sphere, get this, this sphere is the private life. This is who they are when no one's looking. This is who you are when no one's looking. When you're in that hotel room and you're on that business trip and nobody's around you and, and you're completely anonymous, who are you really on the inside? And he said, this is the kind of guy you need to look at. Look at verse eight. It's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, this is, this is the hard work of leadership, who you are on the inside, your self-governance, the way you run yourself. And he said, this person needs to be self-controlled. He controls his temper. He controls his words. He controls his urges. He controls his desires. He controls his ambition. He controls all these things around him, his emotions, his thought life. He's always under control. She's always controlling these things, never out of control in any area, never flippant or off the handle, but, but disciplined and measured and controlled in all these areas to hold them under the, Lord, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, holy, I love this, holy and, and, uh, and, and upright, that they really want to love God and they want to be upright and they want to take the high road in situations. Um, they want to be holy in what they do. Kind of like Daniel uh, in the Old Testament who was a, in a very secular, dark environment, yet Daniel chose not to defile himself with the things around him, but chose to live the high road, take the high road. Everybody else takes the low road, but I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to be different. I'm going to set apart. And then it, I love this. It says that they're disciplined. They're disciplined in, their, in every area, in their money. Disciplined in their money. Disciplined in their time. Disciplined in their schedule. Disciplined with their health. I mean, basically they see that their body and their time and their money are basically 
on loan from God and they're a steward of it. So they're very disciplined in what they do so that, so that they maximize what God has given them. See, they're disciplined. Now listen, all this holy, disciplined, uh, self-control, this is who that person is on the inside. That's who they are in their private life. Is that you? Are you disciplined, self-controlled, pursuing righteousness and holiness? You know, I, I was talking with a friend of mine who's early in his career, he said all the buddies in his office would go to, go to the, a local bar after work. And they'd always get a drink after work. And they'd, come on, man, come on. And so he thought, well, I got to go, you know, if I'm going to get in with the group. And so he said, I would go. He said, I never really would drink, but I'd just take a Coke and I'd hang out with them. And he said, after a while, he said, you know, I was, I was doing it. I was kind of feeling a little uncomfortable. And he said, one day, I thought I spotted somebody that goes to my church. And my first thought was, what is he doing there? And then the second thought was, what am I doing here? Right? And he said, you know what? I can't do this. I, I want to be known as a man that loves Christ and is pursuing holiness and, and, and wants to live for God. And I can't do that if, if, if this is my reputation. I, I said, I got to stop that. So he said, I drew a line in the sand. I said, I'm not going anymore. And uh, the guys would say, why don't you come, man? He used to come hang out with us. He go, no. And, and he said, I paid a price for it. But he said, you know what? It was worth it. That man went on to climb the ladder and, and be a major influencer, but, it's, but he was an influencer known as a godly man. See, known as a godly man. So are you known as a godly woman, a godly man? Is that in your private life? Are you disciplined and self-controlled and pursuing holiness? Are you in your public life? You have that reputation of treating people right and, and, and loving people and, and loving what's good? Are you in your home life? Do everybody know that you love your spouse and you love your kids and you're engaged and, and make them a priority? The four spheres of faithful leadership. But there's one more. You say, well, Craig, there's only three there. Well, there's, there's one more sphere. And it happens right here. It happens right there in the middle. And this is what we call the spiritual life. The spiritual life. And Paul talks about it. Look at it in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this is a person that loves the word, all right? They just love the word. And then, man, he's getting up in the morning and he's, and he's in the word. And she's getting up at 5 a.m. and she's in the word and she's studying the scriptures and she's on her knees. This is a person that loves Jesus with all their heart and is in the word and knows what's true and what's not true and is able to speak that out. And this is a person who's sharing their faith and their prayer life is vibrant and they're discipling and investing in others and they realize that they want to make a spiritual eternal impact that their impact is not just in their career that comes and goes but their impact is investing in people and that's how they live their life now here's the thing I put it here because this life affects everything else out of the overflow out of the spring of that person's spiritual life they are better at home they're godly people at home and out of the overflow they become a uh, godly people in their private life and ultimately they are known as godly people in the public life it all starts right there it starts in the spiritual life of a pursuit for god and a love for god's word so how are you doing in these four spheres of faithful leadership how is it in home really how's your marriage how's your kids how are you investing how are you prioritizing that how is it at the office, what is your reputation? And is it that you love people 
and your love, not that you're perfect, but is that pervasively where you're moving? How is your, how is your private life? Are you devoted to holiness and godliness and disciplined in these areas of your life? When I will set goals for, my, for the year, I usually take those four spheres, those four circles, and I set goals in every one of these areas, and I try to evaluate them throughout the year to help me stay on track. And that may be a good thing for you to do. But, but the core of it is at the center. You know, I, uh, I, I, I was doing this, and I preparing this message, and I thought about a man named Herman Reese, who's a friend of mine. Herman is a businessman in Oklahoma City who invested in my life. When Herman was a young boy, he heard the gospel. He was a, on a dairy farm. He said he walked out into the night sky underneath the moon and the stars. And he said, God, if this is true, if Jesus really died for me, then I want to live for you. And he gave his life to Christ. He said that decision directed the rest of his life. He married Marita, his, his love of his life. In fact, everybody knew that Herman loved Marita. In fact, every time he would introduce her, he would say, this is Marita and I'm her man. Get it? Herman her man. Anyway, it's kind, of, it's kind of corny, but people knew what he was saying. I mean, he would always dote on her and always love her. In fact, everybody that talked about Herman, it was Herman and Marita. They were just always together because he was so devoted to his wife. He had four children that he loved and doted on and cared for them. Many of them are in ministry now, and even those that really struggled, he would show grace to and kindness to and, and gently guided them. He was faithful at home. He was also had a great reputation in the, in the marketplace. He was a, a surgeon, and it was a stellar surgeon. It was known as a man who did incredible work. He also had multiple businesses. He was a very busy guy, very industrious guy. And he had, he had a restaurant, and he had some other businesses, and yet he always operated at the highest ethical standard and always did things right. He always treated people right, even when he had to make hard leadership calls. And then he was also a man that was just known as a man that was good. He was a man that loved the word. He poured over the word all the time. He knew scripture right and left. In fact, he would often lead other businessmen to Christ. Many, who, many of the businessmen who today are in high levels of leadership in Oklahoma City were won to Christ by Herman in their boardrooms, in their offices. In fact, Herman was recognized as one of the stellar examples of a businessman by that whole community. They did it through a big banquet just for him and recognized his powerful impact. As I thought about him and thought about this, this passage in Titus, I called him up this week. I called up Herman. I said, Herman, how you doing? And we'd fought for a little while. And, and it's funny, even in our conversation, he just would quote scripture right and left just because it just flows out of him. He can't not quote scripture. And he said, Craig, he said, I'm 89 years old. And he said, uh, I've lived long enough to see the fruit of my life, not only in my family, but in the men that I've led to Christ and the businesses. And, and he said, it was worth it. It was worth it. Listen, I, I, I hung up that phone and I thought, I want to be like that. When I'm 89 years old, to say that I put Jesus in the center of my life and it was worth it. Let me ask you something. What kind of leader are you? What kind of influence are you? And, and, and it, could it be that maybe if Jesus is not the center, then your home life's struggling and your public life and your private life are struggling? It always comes back to your spiritual life. That's the fountain that feeds all the rest.